At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. Today, we start a new series. It's called Asking for a Friend. And over the next several weeks, we want to take up some of the big questions of life and try our best to find rock-solid answers. Each one of us is processing through some pretty big questions, which poses an even bigger question. And that is, where do you go for your answers? Where do you go to answers on life's biggest questions? Well, it's interesting because that was the center of a survey that was done by a research institution known as the Pew Research Center. They've been around for a long time and they have been studying uh, American life and culture. And they polled over 2,800 Americans recently and asked the question, where do you go for answers to life's questions? And of the 2,800 that were polled, nearly 60% said that the place they primarily turn to for frequently asked questions on issues like finance or education, government, or relationships, and yes, even religion and faith, is the internet. Now, I hope that makes you as nervous as it makes me, because technology is a blessing in so many ways. But one of the mistakes that we can make that is so often made when we go and do a search on a search engine for one of those big questions is to assume what I call worldview neutrality. That the answers that are given to us are simply seeking to give us the best answers and not representative of somebody's worldview. But let us never forget that all technology is made by people and every person has a world view. So that means that when you go onto any search engine or when you ask Alexa or Siri a question, then they're going to prefer certain answers over others. And quite often those answers that you get back are not in line with a biblical world view. I'll never forget, I've told this story before of my son Cameron He's 12, he's the kid that asks all the tough questions and, and uh, he was around seven years old and he was in the midst of asking me a series of questions and then he asked me, Dad, do all dogs shed? I wasn't prepared for a lot of questions, but this one I knew I had the answer to. The question again, do all dogs shed? The answer is no. So I answered quickly, no, with confidence in my voice to which he responded just as quick, and he says, Dad, I don't believe you, let's ask Siri. I was so hurt by his response. I love whenever I'm right and Alexa is wrong. Can I get an amen? But here's the reality, is that there is no such thing as worldview neutrality on the internet. As a matter of fact, two Georgetown law professors did a report called The Myth of platform neutrality. Among the many things they said, here's one quote for you. The fact is that search engines are most often used to confirm our own biases and simply reflect back to us the collective voices we want to hear instead of actually leading us to truth. 
The goal of these search engines is profit and they're made by people with worldviews and, and not only that, they confirm our own biases and not only that, they're just echoing back to us the collective voices of the masses which so often don't agree with the biblical worldview or even seek truth. So if you can't rely on technology for truth, if you can't rely on the masses for truth, where do you and I go for truth? Well, I'm so grateful that Jesus says in John 17, your word is truth. How many thank God for the inerrant, infallible, eternal, inspired word of the living God. And so we're going to be searching the scriptures to answers to big questions like, how do I share my faith with friends who come from a different religious background than me, or maybe even an atheist? Or questions like we're going to deal with next week, is anxiety a sin? It's a great question. But today I'm going to deal with what I believe to be the most important question in all of life, and that is, who is Jesus? Or to put it more specifically, who is the real Jesus? You know, this series is compiled of questions that we get from our church family as pastors. We put this into a series, and one of the ways this question often comes to me is like this. Pastor, people uh, who are Jehovah's Witnesses say that they worship Jesus. People who are Mormons say that they love Jesus. Muslims will even say that they honor Jesus. Who is the real Jesus? And I think that that is a great question. And I don't think that there's anybody better to go to on this question than Jesus himself. So join me in your Bibles in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Or if you have your Bible apps, go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. While you're turning there, I just want to say that this all reminds me of an incident I went through in the summer of 2016. It was then, life was uh, amazing, family was doing well and growing, uh, and the leadership of Moody Radio had come to me to ask if me and my wife would pray about launching a national program, me launching a national radio program. And we prayed and we sensed the Lord saying to do it. And so we launched out into this ministry endeavor. And pretty quickly, God confirmed his grace in it all. His lives were very evidently being impacted by the gospel and being changed. And there's nothing that brings my heart greater joy. But it's just like our enemy that in the midst of a spiritually high moment to send some type of attack or distraction. And such was the case because in the summer of that year, I get a, a call that tells me that someone had begun to open up lines of credit, credit accounts, in my name without my permission. And the bills were being mailed to the radio headquarters for uh, the Moody Radio Station. And first it was a line of credit for jewelry. And then it was a line of credit for an auto loan. And then they had the audacity to file a false unemployment benefits claim. Here I am working two jobs and somebody's getting unemployment in my name. Consider that for a moment. And uh, I was so frustrated. I went to the police department to tell them, hey, somebody's opening up all these false credit accounts in my name, to which I discovered 
very quickly that I was one of millions of Americans who have suffered identity theft. Anybody ever been through this before? Identity theft, stolen identity. Now for those of you who have, or those of you who understand the concept, you get just an inkling of what Jesus has been going through for literally thousands of years. Of various religions, philosophies of men have used his name while distorting who he really is, his real identity in order to cash in on the cachet that is associated with Jesus and to get an audience with people. But just because someone uses the same language doesn't mean they give the same definition to that language. And one of the things that we have to do is to press beyond just a mere use of language and to ask, what do you mean by that? When you refer to God or heaven or salvation or yes, even Jesus, what do you mean when you say that? Who are you referring to to make sure we're not dealing with a case of identity theft? Well, Jesus takes up this question in Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew's gospel, verses 13 through 18. And what we're going to see is Jesus presenting to us in these verses three questions with one correct answer. The first question that we see is, who do people say I am? Look at verse number 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man? is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We'll stop there for right now. This is an important question. Jesus takes his disciples aside, and he asks them this very important question. And this is in a very strategic moment in the life of his ministry. You see, Matthew 16 uh, acts as a line of demarcation. Prior to this, Jesus was growing in popularity and in prominence. The, the crowds clamored to hear from him. It was because of the power of his teaching and the miracles that he had performed. But it was at this moment in, in Matthew chapter 16 that the religious leaders of his day, primarily described by two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the dominant religious groups of that day, not the only ones, but the dominant ones, they desired to kill him. They desired to take him out. And we see their motives in verse number one of this chapter. In verse number one, it says that they were seeking to test him. And by test, that meant that they were going to ask him a series of questions in hope to ensnare him or entrap him so that they can imprison him or maybe even worse, again, crucify him. But Jesus wasn't fooled for a moment. He knew their motives. He even warned his disciples about their intentions. Look at verse number six. It says here that Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By leaven, he was referring to their teaching. It was impure. It was tainted. It was not healthy to follow, neither their example or their teaching. All of it was distorted because they did not get the most important question in life correct. And so in the midst of this, this uh, chapter begins his march to the end of his life, to his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection and ultimate exaltation and glorification. But prior to that, knowing that things were about to intensify, he pulls his companions to the side for a private, intimate time of teaching and fellowship. And it's there that he asks this question, 
Who do the people say that I am? It's as if he was saying, go to the search engines of your day and do a search and find out what does the culture say about me? And this is, again, a question that is not inconsequential. As a matter of fact, if you don't remember anything else that I say, and I hope that you do, I want you to remember this, that getting this question right will determine at least three things about your life. It will determine your level of earthly peace. We heard it in the testimonies today in baptism. There is no peace apart from Christ. If you've ever wondered why people pour so many poisons into their bodies by way of alcohol and drugs, it's because they are searching for peace. If you ever wonder why people would abuse their bodies and the bodies of others through surgeries and sexuality, it's because they're looking for peace. It is true that we are restless. And as uh, one church father said, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, he said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that is true for us in our relationship with God. We remain restless until we find our rest in him. Your earthly peace will be determined by you answering this question correctly because if you do, you will discover the Prince of Peace whose peace surpasses all understanding. How many thank God that you know him and you know his peace? Not only your earthly peace, but your eternal security will be determined by how you answer this question. Heaven and earth weigh in the balance. This is not an inconsequential question. You have to get the question of who is he correct? As we just completed our study of Revelation, which tells us in chapters 19 and 20 of the expected damnation that is waiting for those who reject him or don't get this answer right. And then in chapters 21 and 22, the promise of blessing, eternal blessing for those who do get this question right. Don't think that you can just go through life without dealing with this question. You must deal with this question. If he is who he says that he is, then everything else in life is but a footnote to who he is. And then our evangelistic passions are determined by this. Whether we share our faith or not will be determined by us getting this answer right. Many studies have been published about our anemic evangelism as Christians in America. One by Lifeway Research, recently published, says only one-third of Christians in this country actually share their faith with a friend. While that same poll says about 93% of the non-Christian people who were polled said that if a friend came to me to talk to me about Jesus, I'd be open to that. But why don't we share? It's because we haven't gotten this question right. So what was their response? It's an interesting response. Look at how they respond. Some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. To sum it up in a word, what they were saying is that Jesus, while there is not consensus on who you are, surely the people see you as a special guy. But he is not flattered by us simply seeing him as a special guy. He wants more than fans. He wants faithful followers. Isn't it interesting how many people seem to esteem Jesus in a general way? 
Think about the uh, searches of our day, the responses of our day, that Jesus is a great moral teacher, a great philosopher, or maybe even a prophet like the Muslims say, but he is far more than that. Think about what they just said. Jesus, some say you're John the Baptist. It was just a few chapters before this in chapter 11 where Jesus says of of men born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. That that was a pretty high uh, um, compliment paid to John the Baptist, but he certainly wasn't Jesus. What about Elijah? If you study Malachi in the Old Testament, chapter 4, verse number 3, Malachi was predicted to be the forerunner for the Messiah, that he would come back and be a forerunner before the Messiah. That's pretty special, isn't it? But it certainly isn't Jesus or Jeremiah, who was highly esteemed by the Jews, and it was thought by the rabbis of that day that Jeremiah, during his life, had hidden the Ark of the Covenant in Mount Nebo, and he would come back before the Messiah and reveal where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's pretty special, but it's not Jesus or one of the prophets like Moses was. That's pretty special, but it's not Jesus. So don't fall short of who he is. You, you know, all of these, uh, these uh, people that they compared Jesus to, they were special people, but they fall woefully short of being the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How many know that Jesus is greater than angels, greater than prophets, greater than Moses? How many know that he is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and worthy of all of our worship and submission? That's who Jesus is. And what we're going to discover is that he is so much more than just a great guy. Don't ever allow the masses to make you think that you've arrived at the right answer just because you think Jesus is a great moral philosopher or just some prophet or some great moral teacher. He is far greater than all of these. As a matter of fact, uh, It's important that you understand, and I'll use this analogy, the analogy of sports for just a moment. There are two types of sports in life. There are sports of proximity and sports of precision. Sports where you can win by getting close, you can score by getting close, and sports where you have to actually get it exactly right in order to get points to score and to win. A sport of proximity is like horseshoes. How many by the show of hands have ever played horseshoes before? Most of you, this is going to go over well, unlike most of my sports analogies. Now, horseshoes works this way. You take the shoe, you throw it towards the goal. You don't have to necessarily get around the goal, but as long as you're closer than your competition, you can get points. But then there's golf. And golf is a game that God made in order to punish us for our sins. Because golf requires you to take this little ball hit it hundreds of yards into a little hole and you get zero points, no score, until you get that little ball into that little hole, which has caused many of us to throw drivers or to break putters in the name of Jesus. (laughs) 
There is a difference, friends, between proximity and precision. In, the name, in this question, who is Jesus, close enough is not good enough. You can't just get it close and say he's some general good guy or one of many religious leaders that is worthy of our appreciation or that he is like other philosophers or prophets. No, he is in a category all by himself. There there is nobody like him, nobody worthy of worship, nobody worthy of our allegiance, nobody worthy of our submission, but Jesus Christ. And so who is he? And so he asks a second question, more personal now. Verse number 15, he says to them, but you, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So powerful, so succinct, so appropriate. Here Jesus personalizes the question. And why does he personalize the question? Going from the masses, who do the people say that I am, to going to the personal, who do you say that I am? It's because all of us must answer that question. It's because Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. It's been said that God has no grandchildren. What that means is that you don't get to come to faith just because your parents had a relationship with Jesus or went to church. No, you have to decide for yourself how you will answer this question. Who is Jesus? Every sermon must leave us with this question. Every gospel presentation, if it is done right, ushers us to the point of being confronted with the question, who do you say he is? As a matter of fact, I would not be doing my job if I just came up here and had some poetic speech and wax eloquent about my own philosophies about life and social issues and, and left you with heaven and hell weighed in the balance. No, your life, your soul is too important. And so I must, if I'm doing my job correctly, not let you leave this place without being confronted. But the most important question in all of life, and that is who do you say he is? The you in this verse is a plural you, Jesus asking all of his closest companions, the 12 as they gathered with him in this intimate gathering, who do you say that I am? You who know me the best, you who say you're my followers, and you would expect that their answers would be different than that of the masses, and certainly it was. Though he asked the group, Peter spoke up. Oh man, do I love Peter. Peter the impetuous, Peter the guy who was the unelected spokesperson for the disciples. How many in here know a Peter or two? Anybody ever met a Peter? Anybody say, I am Peter? If you're sitting next to Peter, don't say anything because you'll pay for it later. But Peter speaks up and Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he got it pitch perfect, friends. This was no horseshoes. This was the, hole, the ball in the hole. This was exactly right. This is who Jesus is. Any answer other than this falls woefully short of who he is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. One answer, two components. 
Let's camp out here for a moment because it is the most important part of the text. The first part of the answer is you are the Christ. This is an allusion back to the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel was promised by God that there was a Messiah who was coming, that he would be the Savior King of Israel. From Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, who says that there's a prophet who's coming that is like unto me, but even greater than I am. Who is that greater? It is Jesus. That's who it was. David, the great king of Israel, was promised in a Davidic covenant that there would be one who was to come that would be from his genealogy, one of his sons who would sit on the throne perpetually and rule over Israel and the nations and would be the savior king of Israel and by extension the world. And this is who Jesus is. How do I know? It's because of Scripture. Look with me for a moment in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9. And if you have your apps, you can go to Isaiah chapter 9. You should see this for yourself. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6, what is often in our hearing a Christmas passage, which really is so much more than that, says this, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He promises that from the lineage of David, there would come one of his descendants that would sit on the throne forever and ever. This is why genealogies are given to you in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And I know genealogies can be boring. Who, after all, wants to sit around and just read a census? One begat another and another begat another. But all of that is given as historical evidence that Jesus is from the line of David and that he was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, that he was the long-awaited savior king of Israel who would rule the nations. How many thank God that God fulfilled his promise? But he didn't stop there with his answer, did he? No, he went on to say that you are the son of the living God. Friends, make no mistake about it, this is a statement of divinity. That to say that he was the son of the living God made him equal to God. And you say, Chris, how do you know that? Again, the scriptures tell me that. Look at John chapter 5. So important that you see this with your own eyes. John chapter 5, verse number 18. Look at these words. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Jesus. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
They understood to say that you were the son of God in their culture, in their vernacular, was to say that I am the divine one in flesh. Jesus was the second person of the triune Godhead come in flesh to redeem us from our sins. He is the savior king of Israel, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, and he is God in flesh. He is Lord of lords. He is king of kings and he is worthy of our worship the resurrected savior who comes to save us from our sins so who do you say he is and i wish i could tell you that you had months or years or even weeks to work out the answer to this but for some of you god is giving you plenty of time and he's saying today Today, as I open your eyes, harden not your heart as you hear the voice of the Lord. But then, inferred in verses 17 and 18 where we close is what does Jesus say about himself? In verse 17 it says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So little time to dive into this, but I must. In verse number 17, we see Jesus not only on the heels of Peter's bold declaration that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, not only does he accept that title upon himself, but he takes it a step further and says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't get this from doing a search engine search. You didn't get this from going to the masses, but my father who is in heaven revealed this to you. friends. If you're just going to rely on the masses to reveal to you who Jesus is, you may not ever hear the right answer. There's so much convoluted and confusion around who he is in the masses. No, it takes the Father to reveal to us the Son. And how does the Father reveal to us who the Son is? Through his word spoken by his servants. And in the day that you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your heart. Today, if you hear the voice of Scripture speaking to you, don't deny that. Today can be the day of your salvation because God loves you and he sent his son to die so that we might know salvation and glorify him. But he goes on to say some powerful words in verse number 18 and unfortunately, in large part because of Catholicism, verse number 18 has been very confusing in the eyes of many as they've been debating what rock is this referring to? And some have argued that Peter is the rock because in the Greek that's Petros, which means rock. And, and that is a total misunderstanding of this whole conversation. Peter isn't the center of this conversation. He's not the focal point. Jesus is the focal point. It is Peter's confession 
confession that is the rock, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, is the foundation upon which the church is built. Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the entire building that is the church. And we need to be glad that Peter is not the rock because in just a few short verses, he's going to go from saying something absolutely divine to something that causes Jesus to say, get thee behind me, Satan. And how many know those inconsistencies in your own life? The church can't be built off of us. It's built off of him. And if you're debating the rock, you'll miss the I and the my of the verse. I will build my church. It is his church and he is the one that is building it. And we are a part of the church by faith in Jesus by grace, by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, as the scriptures alone confirm. How many praise God for that truth? So today, I ask you, who do you say he is? C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, says that the way we know something to be true can be proven. And he gives this rope analogy. He says it's easy to trust in a rope when all you have to do is tie up things with it. But your faith is really, and your trust is really proven when you have to hang from that rope over a precipice. Heaven and hell weighs in the balance on how you answer this question. And how many have clung to the rope of Jesus and are happy that you've put your faith and your trust in him. Today, I'm asking you to stand with me. And our worship team is gonna come and they're gonna close us, but before our worship team comes, I wanna ask you to search your hearts. And if you could, bow your heads, close your eyes. This is a private, this is an intimate moment, but I want you to hear Jesus asking you the question, who do you say that I am? And maybe you've been pondering that question and today you're ready to make that profession like Peter did. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Search your heart today. Bow your heads. Those of you who already know him as Savior, please begin to pray. Pray that somebody today will give their life to Jesus. Someone that the Lord has been loving and chasing after would finally bow their knee, the knee of their hearts to him. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest for your soul. Maybe you need a savior more than anyone else knows, but you know you need a savior. You know you need forgiveness. You know you want to get this right. Not just close to right, but you want to get this right. If today... You want Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. I want you to simply raise your hand all over this room. Just raise your hand. I see hands going up. Raise it high. Raise it high. Maybe you're coming to Christ for the first time, or maybe you're coming back to Christ because you wandered away from him. But if today you say, I want to surrender my life to him, and I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Raise your hand high and keep it high because I just want to pray for you. I see a dozen or more hands up and praise God that on a summer Sunday morning that Christ would save those who are calling upon his name. 
Now, for those of you whose hands are up, I'm going to pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, take our hearts of stone and remove them and give us hearts of flesh. Lord, thank you for showing yourself to my brothers and sisters. May they turn from sin and repentance into Christ. And may you today seal them as they profess faith in you. Fill them with your Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name. And all God's people with a loud voice said, amen and amen. Somebody give him praise today. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.